0: Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, My name's Steve. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew 28. Matthew 28. If you've got your phone or wherever you look at your Bible, go ahead and turn that on. If you don't have a Bible or a phone with you, uh, grab one of these in the seats uh, on the floor around you. And it's page 698 in this Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, please take this one with you. It's our gift to you. Uh, write your name in the front of it, mark it up during the sermon, do whatever you need to do to make it yours, because we want you to have uh, the Word of God in your hands wherever you go. Hey, on October 14, 1987, I was a high school senior. Uh, but uh, 18-month-old Jessica Jessica McClure, you may remember the story, was playing with her cousins in her aunt's backyard, and she fell down a hole from an abandoned well. And the hole she fell down was about eight inches in diameter. This is an eight-inch pipe right here. So you can see that it's big enough for a toddler to slide into, but not quite large enough for an adult to get into. Do we have any toddlers that would want to try this out in the room right now? (laughs) Try that out. Uh, Jessica found down this hole and eventually came to rest about 22 feet below the ground. Baby Jessica, as she came, came to be known. How many of you remember this story, uh, following the story? Yeah, a lot of people in the room. If you were alive then and old enough to watch the news, however old that is, uh, you probably remember. There, there was a big rescue effort that took place, and it began with local police and firefighters who quickly looked at the 8-inch hole and decided not much we can do about that, we're gonna need some more expertise. Um, They were afraid to dig into the well because pieces could fall down and hit her. They didn't wanna send any food or water down there because if she choked on it, there was nobody there to help her. And so there was a lot of uh, uncertainty about what to do about this. So they called in uh, some experts, drilling experts, first with wells, like water wells, and then finally oil and gas experts who were plentiful in the Midland, Texas area. Um, And her situation drew national attention. The whole country watched to see what would happen with baby Jessica. Prayer vigils were held in her honor all over the country. Uh, People gathered around the site of the home to watch and hopeful for that moment when she would be brought up out of that hole. Um, And this fledgling news news network called CNN was there around the clock covering the event, had, uh, uh, had updates all night long from Midland, Texas. Well, because the well was so narrow, they decided to do this. They drilled a second shaft down into the uh, parallel to the first one, which was wider, wide enough for an adult to be lowered down there. And then they would drill a perpendicular shaft over just below where baby Jessica was sitting, and they could pull her out and rescue her there. As the rescue stretched into the third day, everybody who was qualified and willing showed up to help people with drilling expertise, uh, crane operators, uh, anybody who had any kind of skill that could be put to use showed up to help in this rescue effort. In fact, even people who didn't have the skills necessary showed up to help. I read this week one uh, detail I had missed about this story when I was 17. Um, One detail about this was a guy showed up and his only skill was that he was born without a collarbone and he could press his shoulders together and sneak down into small spaces. They ended up not using him, uh, but he did show up and offered his help. Finally, after 58 and a half hours, Jessica McClure was pulled out of the well and whisked away by firefighters. Well, remember that scene if you saw it? She was covered in mud and grime and millions of people, millions of people watched The Rescue live on television for a few days. And I got to tell you, this, this was a really big news week. I don't know if you remember this. This was also the week that the stock market crashed more than 100 points for the first time in history. And if you lived in Indianapolis, it was also the week when a plane flew into the Ramada Inn at the Indianapolis International Airport, if you remember that. Uh, It was a big week, but for uh, just a couple days, the whole world watched with great attention uh, to, to Midland, Texas, to see this baby rescued from a well. Why was this such a compelling story? Why did we watch it? Well, because we love a good rescue story, don't we? In fact, over the past few years, this kind of story has played out several times. Uh, In 2010, it was a group of miners down in Chile. In 2018, last year, it was a soccer team in Thailand who uh, were exploring a cave and got stuck. And both of those cases, the whole world watched round the clock while the rescue happened. We love a good rescue story. Well, whether you realize it or not, if you're a follower of God, if you call yourself a Christ follower, you are living in the middle of a rescue story right now. You are in the middle of a rescue mission. But in order to see that mission taking place, you really have to understand the wider narrative of the story of God. You have to see where we are in that narrative. There are a few ways that you can kind of parse out the narrative of God is told in the Bible, but uh, one of the ways that we like is put together by a group called Spread Truth Ministries, and uh, they say there are four chapters in the story of God, and I put these in your notes if you want to follow along, and in fact, if you're obsessive about filling in notes, I'm giving you a gift right now. I'm going to give you the first four blanks all together, one time on the same screen. Four chapters to God's story, creation, fall, rescue, and restoration. The story goes like this: creation happened. Uh, we see it happen unfold in Genesis chapter one and two. It happened in the beginning it 's where God made the universe and the earth and the waters and the land and and the plants and the animals and us. He made man and woman and in this new creation, man and woman lived together in harmony with one another and with God and then chapter two comes the fall. this fallen angel named Satan was angry with God, he was jealous of God and so he deceived the man and the woman he enticed them to rebel against God. And this one act of defiance introduced sin and sickness and famine and war into the world. But the worst thing was that the sin separated us from God. Enter chapter 3. The rescue because we were unable to fix our own separation from God. Uh, we were unable to pay for our own sin. God had a rescue plan in mind. He sent His one and only Son, Jesus, to die the death, to, to be born as a baby, to live a perfect life as an example for us, to die a horrible death, a death that we deserved. And then he was raised from the dead as an ultimate symbol of victory over death. And then he ascended into heaven where he now sits at the right hand of the father and he's leading the church and he's interceding on, his, on our behalf and when we pray, but he's not done because he promised that one day he will return. He'll come back to his creation. And when he does, he'll restore all things to their former glory. It'll become again like the garden. It'll be perfect. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And those who have chosen to follow him will get to live there with him forever. And there will be no more suffering and no more pain and no sin and no sickness and no famine and no war and no racism and no death, but that's someday. That's someday. Now, Jesus tells us it's soon, but it's still in the future. And that's chapter four. And until then, we're stuck living here in chapter three, but we're living in chapter three, which is the rescue. We're living in the middle of a rescue mission. And when he returns, scripture tells us that God's goal is that everyone would come with him to live there, that everyone would be saved, that everyone would be a disciple of his. And the really cool thing about this rescue mission is this, that Jesus has invited us, those of us who follow him now, he's invited us into the work of rescuing people. He's invited us to join us in the work of making disciples Of join him in this rescue mission. In fact, we're going to say it this way throughout this series, that we believe that making disciples is God's mission for your life. Making disciples is God's mission for your life. It's the mission for every believer's life. And it's the mission and passion of Genesis Church. From day one, our mission at Genesis has been helping people find their way back to God. Now, that mission comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you haven't heard this before, um, it's the Apostle Paul. He's writing to the church in Corinth, and he tells them this. He says, so we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. That's where our church's mission, helping people find their way back to God. That's where that comes from. And so that's been our mission for the whole life of Genesis. That's been the what we are all about. But at times we didn't really understand the how of the what. Like we, we knew the what, we, we knew it was, we were all about helping people find their way back to God. But how was what we do on Sunday morning meant to help people find their way back to God? How was uh, what we do in connection groups, what we do in our student ministry in GSM, what we do in Gin Kids back there, how does what we're praying for, how does that help people find their way back to God? Well, then in 2014, a few of our pastors, me included, we went through some training on the life and ministry of Jesus and it changed the way we viewed our mission. We learned how to really follow Jesus, not just as an example for our life, but as a model for our ministry by studying through his life chronologically. Now that's really hard to do if you uh, just look at your Bible at face value. Not that everything that you need to know is in scripture is there, believe me. I'm not saying that that's not enough but it's hard to do when you read through the gospels because some authors have a different point of view. They include some stories and not others and other authors include different stories and they're not always in sequential order. Sometimes they're out of order. And so when you start to piece them all together and look at the life of Jesus chronologically, what you see is you get this picture of a man who was very intentional and focused on making disciples. And what we realized is that many of us spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to make this happen when in reality, if we study Jesus, he's already given us the pattern. He's given us the answer. It's, and it's not a church service, and it's not a curriculum. It's not a class. It's, it's a lifestyle. It's a pattern. It's a pattern that Jesus laid out for us of relationally investing your lives in a few. And we think that making disciples the way that Jesus made disciples is the best and most effective way to help people find their way back to God. And so at the end of his time here on earth, after he was crucified, after he was raised from the dead, he appeared to his followers one last time. Uh, and he gave them this last instruction. It's Matthew 28, 18 through 20. It says, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, if you've been in church much at all, There's a good chance that you've heard this verse. And in your Bible, there may be a title at the top of this passage. Uh, What does it say? Does anybody have that in your Bible? What does it say? The Great Commission. The Great Commission. But I don't really like the Great Commission. I, I like the words of Jesus. Don't get me wrong. I don't like that phrase, the Great Commission, because it sounds like a Great Commission sounds like a job for great people. And if you read that and you say, hey, there's a great commission and it must be for great people and I'm not that great, so I ain't going to do it. um, Well, that kind of defeats the purpose, don't you think? So you need to understand that while the words that Jesus spoke were inspired by God, the headings in your Bible were written by men. And uh, there's there's nowhere that Jesus calls this the great commission. In fact, I want to view it. I like to see it as the everyday commission. It's the everyday commission. This everyday commission is really the foundation for this pathway that we're going to introduce to you today. And then we're going to continue to unpack it over the next five weeks. And as we study this passage, what I want you to see is very clearly, uh, you'll see the one, two, three of the passage. One, two, three. One authority, two commands, and three action verbs. All right, and so I'm going to give those to you. First of all, one authority, uh, there is one authority on heaven and earth. Jesus says, all authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And that's a little bit hard for us to understand as Americans, what it means to have all authority because nobody we know has all authority. I mean, even if you go to the highest levels of government, what you see is a, a leadership structure that's intentionally designed to distribute authority among people, right? So you've got three branches of government. The executive and legislative branches are elected, and they appoint the judicial branch of government, and all of them have certain things they can do and certain things they can't do, and they have checks and balances over one another. We're intentionally designed to limit authority. We don't want anybody getting too much authority. It's almost as if our founders looked at us and said, you know what, we are gonna be a nation ruled by sinful, flogged people, and we don't want anybody to have that much authority. So they were careful about not giving anyone too much. So it's hard for us to understand what all authority means. So you have to imagine for a minute what it means to have all authority. Imagine that you give a command and people jump right to it. All right, the closest we have of anything like this in our society right now is parents. Now, parents, imagine for a moment you have all authority. I know for some of you, that's gonna be a stretch like over your kids, right? That you don't have all authority. But when your kids are little, you have more authority, right? Your kids are little, pretty much you can tell them what to do and they do it. You're a lot bigger than they are. You're a lot meaner than they are in some cases. Uh, They're gonna do what you say. And if they don't, well, you can make them do it, right? Remember that? How about this? Remember when you were a kid and the authority you thought your parents had? Like for me, I was the oldest of three and I had some authority. My sisters had no authority because they were younger and smaller. And so the only way they could get me to do something is if they said, dad said so. You need to clean your room. Now, I'm not gonna clean my room. Dad said so. Oh, dad has all authority. I'll go clean my room, right? That's how you get somebody to do something when you have all authority. So just imagine that. Imagine having all authority because here's what happens. Kids get older, they gain more freedom. You have less authority. And when they become adults, well, you really have no authority in their lives at all. You only have influence. But imagine for a moment, you have all authority. What would you do with all authority? What would you have other people do for you? You know, we may be able to accomplish some really great things. Have you ever said, while you're watching the news, or thought, maybe you never said it out loud, boy, if people would just listen to me, this world would be a lot better place. You ever said anything like that? If you had all authority, the world would be a lot better place, right? Maybe, but you'd probably also do some things that maybe weren't so good because we're flawed, sinful people. We would probably do some things outside of God's will too, but not true with Jesus. He had all authority. The father trusted him with all authority and not just on earth, not just all authority on earth, but on heaven, in heaven too. And because Jesus had all authority, he should be the authority in our lives too. He should be the authority in your life. This means that you look to Jesus for how to live your life how to be a good husband or how to be a good wife, how to be a parent, how to be a friend, how to honor God in the workplace, how to prioritize your time, how you determine what success means to you, how to handle your finances. And Jesus should be the authority for the mission and purpose of your life, which leads us to the two commands that are in here. The first command is found in verse 18. I'm sorry, verse 19. Uh, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Now, what's the primary command in this verse? Don't answer me because some of you are gonna say go and I'm gonna let you off the hook and tell you it's not go. And it's not go for a couple of reasons. One, it's not go because of the tense of the verb that's used here in the Greek. But the second reason is if go were the command, this passage wouldn't make much sense. And here's why. You're sitting out on your back porch You open up scripture, you're drinking your coffee or tea or whatever you drink, and you open up to Matthew 28 and you read this passage and it says, therefore, go. And you think, I'm being called. I'm being called to go and be a missionary. Jesus said, therefore, go. So you sell your house, you sell your cars, you sell two thirds of your possessions, you pack up your three suitcases and your family and you get on a plane to Kuala Lumpur. That's in Malaysia, by the way. And so you get on a plane and you go, I'm gonna go be a missionary in Kuala Lumpur. And so you get over there and you start to meet people and you find a church and you find a community and you start to disciple people. You have gone and you're making disciples of all nations just like Jesus told you to. And then finally, after about three months in the country, you have enough stuff unpacked that you feel like I need a moment to relax. And you sit down on one of your boxes that still has clothes in it. And you open up your Bible to Matthew 28 and it says, therefore go. And you still got nine months on your apartment lease, but you wanna be obedient. And so you close your Bible and you take all your boxes and you tell the family, we're going, we're moving again. Right? It doesn't make sense if go is the command if you wanna be obedient. The command is make disciples. Make disciples. The Greek word is mathuteo. It means to make a pupil or a learner out of somebody. The word disciple was used to describe the the people who would follow a rabbi around in ancient Israel. And that's the primary command found in this passage, make disciples. The disciples would have understood this. When they heard Jesus give this command, it was really just the summation of three and a half, three and three quarters years of ministry that they had done with him. And they knew that the heart of this command was his father's greatest desire, is that people would be made into disciples. And the idea behind this command is this. Disciples don't happen by accident. They have to be made. The idea of the gospel message that you are a sinner that you can't find your way back to God on your own, but that God, seeing your desperate situation, sent a savior in Jesus to live a perfect life and die a death you deserve and then be raised from the dead, and if you accept him, you can have eternal life, that is not an intuitive uh, 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 message. That is not something that you're just sitting at the kitchen table one day and you say, oh my gosh, I just realized I'm a sinner. I must need somebody to come save me. I wonder who that somebody is. You won't just do that on your own. Somebody has to teach you that message, right? We have to make disciples. They don't happen by accident. It takes intentionality. It takes work. It takes hard work. According to this verse, uh, who is to make the disciples? Disciples are to make disciples, you and me. We are. Jesus commands not just church organizations, not just full-time pastors, but this command is for every believer, and so people often ask, "What's what God's will for my life?" It's an important question, it's one that you have to answer in your life, but I want to reframe it a little bit, because when you ask it that way, "What's God's will for my life?" you're putting yourself at the center of that question. You become the subject. Let's, let's change it around a little bit, make God the subject. So here's the question we need to ask instead: What's God's will, and how can I give my life to it?" So now you ask that question: "What's God's will? <laughs> Well, his will is that everyone would come to know him and be saved. His will is to see people made into disciples, to be baptized, to be taught to obey all the commands. That's his will and his mission. So here's the point. Why should we make disciples? Because Jesus said so, and he has all authority. Now, I've heard the argument that this commission is not for us, that this commission is... Uh, just for the apostles, just for the ones who were there in that moment. But there's a simple way that we can tell this is not the case. Look at what Jesus says. He says to his disciples, go and make disciples. And then he says, teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. And that teach them to obey everything I've commanded you includes the command I just gave you a second ago, right? Go and make disciples of all nations and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you, including that they should go and make disciples of all nations, right? That's why we say making disciples is God's mission for your life. All right, now, Jesus also gives us a picture here of the process of making disciples. So he's going to give us three action words that are in there. I already told you that there are three of those, right? One command or one authority, two commands, three action words. Uh, Here are the three action words. First is the word go. Uh, The word go can also be translated to the way it's used uh, in the passive voices, as you go. This is Jesus telling us that disciple-making is a lifestyle. It's it's not about what you do, what you are doing. It's about how you do what you are doing. It's not a curriculum. It's not a program. It's about abiding in Christ and then investing your life that is rooted in Christ in the lives of other people, of other people who will become disciples, who will make disciples. It's not about what you're doing. It's about who you are becoming. As you grow in your relationship with Christ, uh, you will see all of life, through the lens of disciple-making. The second action verb is the word baptizing. This is all about bringing people to a saving knowledge of Jesus and then helping them to to express that decision they've made uh, through baptism, publicly proclaiming and identifying with the person and cause of Jesus. And when we baptize here, which we're going to do the first weekend in October, we baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, just like Jesus commanded. And we want to highlight here that evangelizing non-Christians and baptizing new believers is a part of making disciples. And you may not hear that in a lot of churches. For, for years, the church has separated evangelism and discipleship. There's a good chance if you came here from another church, you may have heard, you may have come from a church that said that they were all about evangelism. They were all about reaching the lost. And, and what they wanted you to do was go tell your neighbors about Jesus and invite them to church and let us tell them about who Jesus is. And we'll get them across that goal line and then... We're done, we can take a breath. And then there's other churches that are all about discipleship. And what they wanna do is bring in people who are already believers and they wanna take them through some classes and teach them and grow them in their knowledge of Jesus. But according to Jesus here, you're not making disciples unless you're helping people find their way back to God and helping them grow in their relationship with Christ. So the third verb Jesus gives us is this. We've got go, we've got baptize. And the third one is teach them, teach them to obey. We've got to help believers follow Jesus and obey his leadership. And I want to highlight something in this verse. Jesus doesn't just say teach. Sometimes we teach for knowledge, right? Many churches, when they think of discipleship, think of growing in knowledge. They think of classes that they'll offer, but that's not disciple-making. I mean, sure, we teach for knowledge sometimes, and sometimes we teach for encouragement, and sometimes we teach for application, and those are all valid reasons to teach. They're all important reasons to learn. They're all appropriate ways to teach at times, but the goal of teaching the believer, according to Jesus here, is obedience. We want to teach them to obey. So if you're not teaching your disciples to obey, you're not being a disciple maker. You know, if you're not teaching your children to obey, you're not making disciples of your children. I mean, there comes a time in every parent's life when you have to tell your kids, hey, at some point, you need to realize, I never really had authority over you, but except for what God gave to me, and now as you're, as you're going, God has that same authority over you. Like, I've made a disciple out of you because I've taught you how to follow me as I followed him, right? We've got to teach people to obey. Now, I mentioned earlier there are actually two commands, and astute listeners will know I, already, I only gave you one, uh, and note takers. So uh, the first command was make disciples. What's the second command? Well, it's kind of hard to see uh, in the... Um, translation that we usually use here, the NIV, Uh, but if you look at some other English translations like the ESV, it's much easier to see. It's in verse 20. So here's uh, that same commission, the everyday commission in the ESV, Matthew 28, 18. It says, and Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Verse 20 says, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And there's that second command. It's the word behold here. It's it's the Greek word edu. And edu means to keep your eyes fixed on or to keep watching. In other words, Jesus is saying, keep looking at me. As you go and make disciples, keep your eyes fixed on me. Look at me. When making disciples, it's critical that we keep our eyes on Jesus. We've got to continue abiding in him. He doesn't give us a command, and then we leave and do the work on our own. No, Jesus gives us a command to make disciples, and he says, hey, as you're doing it, keep your eyes fixed on me. Keep watching me. I will show you how to do this. And he tells us to keep his eyes on him, and then he promises, catch this now, he promises, surely I will be with you even to the end of the age, all of the time, he comes alongside of us in the midst of the work. And that's really important because some of you are sitting here right now in your seat and I can just read it on your faces. you're going, I don't know how to make disciples. I know, that's why Jesus said, follow me and I will teach you to make disciples. I will teach you to fish for people. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men, fishers of women. Jesus promises if we keep our eyes fixed on him, he will show us how to do this work. This passage is the summary of Jesus' entire ministry. It's not a church growth plan. Making disciples is the Father's rescue plan for the nation of earth. All the nations of earth. Making disciples is God's global mission. It's the the church's local mission. It's been said that not so much that the church has a mission, but that the mission has a church. It's our mission here at Genesis, and it hopefully it's your mission too it's our mission individually to make disciples of all nations we want to be a church family on mission together and so our vision over the last 5 years has to be has has been to become a disciple-making church. And what we've done over the past five years is to study this commission from Jesus and look at his life as our model for ministry. And for the past five years, every fall, if you've been here, you know we've done a series about the life and ministry of Jesus. And over those years, we've kind of parceled out piece by piece as it's been revealed to us, some some puzzle pieces, some things that we think that God is trying to show us about what it means to be a disciple-making church. But this year, for the first time, we feel like he's finally shown us the whole puzzle. And so over the next five weeks, we're gonna be rolling out this pathway for disciple-making at Genesis Church and in your life. And this is not so much something we've developed as it's something we've discovered. That as we study the life and ministry of Jesus and we try to follow him more closely, we're seeing uh, the, the work that he's given us to do. So in this commission... Jesus gave us the command to make his disciples. And in his life, he gives us the example of how to do that. And so um, there's a pathway, like I said, that we've been working on. And I wanna tell you this, the important part of a pathway is that everybody can be on it somewhere. And so when you hear the idea that making disciples is God's mission for your life and you're here and I'm just checking out Jesus, I don't even know who he is. You want me to go make disciples? If you don't know Jesus, no, I don't want you to go make disciples because you're gonna reproduce who you are. If you're growing in your faith, that's great. I'm so glad you're here. If you don't know uh, who Jesus is and you don't even know what you think about him, that's great. I'm glad that you're here. We've got some people that would love to walk alongside of you in a connection group. We've got some people who would love to take one, be meeting with you one-on-one and help you find out who Jesus is. That's awesome. Your goal right now is not to make disciples. The, God's mission for your life is to make disciples eventually. But right now, Is for you to grow in your relationship with Christ. And we'll show you this in the pathway. Um, This goes from the upper left, uh, clockwise, around to the lower right. So the very first step there and the upper left is connect. We see Jesus leading his disciples uh, down a pathway that consisted of just a few major steps. And we think that he wants to lead our church family down this same pathway. And this will help us follow the model of Jesus. And so the first step is to connect. We want everyone to connect uh, in community and develop a few close friendships here at Genesis Church. One of the things I love about Genesis, maybe one of the things that brought you here, one of the things you love about it, is that you can be a part of this church without believing. That you can come here and you can feel welcomed. You can feel like you belong even when you don't believe. We want people to connect to a church family. We grow better together. Our hope and prayer is to see everyone find their place in this local church family. But eventually... We don't want people just sitting in the seats and not getting to know who Jesus is. Eventually, we want them to encounter Jesus. That's step two, to encounter Jesus, to come to know, to, to, to encounter the living Jesus in a very real way. Our prayer is that everyone would come and hear the gospel. By the way, we preach the gospel every week. I don't know if you've noticed that, but we're intentional about that. That's an intentional step on our part. We want to make sure that anybody who comes here encounters the living Jesus and hears the gospel, and eventually we want people to respond to that and take a step of faith and become a follower of Jesus. And in that step, after they encounter Jesus, as they start following, we want them to be baptized. It's one of the commands, one of the action words that Jesus gave us is to baptize them. We want people to express that belief through baptism. And so if you're a follower of Jesus and you've never been baptized, you've never been baptized as an adult, uh, do that. What's stopping you? We're going to do that the first week of October. We want you to do it. We want you to be a part of it. Uh, Then the third step in the lower right there is to start following Jesus. So once you encounter Jesus, you hear the gospel message, you respond to it in a positive way, you decide, I want to accept his forgiveness, and you start to follow Jesus. We want to see every believer learn to follow Jesus, to develop a close personal relationship with him, to abide in him when times are good, when times are tough, to have that relationship and to go and bear much fruit. That's Jesus's will for our lives, is to go bear much fruit. We wanna see them grow in their faith and eventually as they get to that point where they think there's gotta be more to my life than this, we wanna see them move on to step number four there, which is to multiply their lives into a few. Multiply their lives into a few. We want uh, to see every believer as they grow in Christ, learn to multiply his or her life by relationally investing in a few individuals. And our prayer is that everybody would join the mission of making disciples. Now, everyone is somewhere on this pathway. And so if you don't know where you are yet over the next few weeks, we're going to help you take some steps to figure that out. Um, We have a brochure at the Info Hub too, by the way, that lays out in more detail this pathway. I'm going to invite you to go grab one of these if you want after the service. Take one per household, please, um, because we're a little limited on them. But it walks you in more detail through the four steps. We're going to use this as we go through this series. And there's also some tools in here that are going to be helpful for you in making disciples. Um, we believe that becoming a disciple-making church and following Jesus is not just the job of a few of us who are full-time pastors that it starts with you and it starts with me. It starts with what we're doing in our personal life. This is every Christ follower's mission. Making disciples is God's mission for your life. And I just wanna, as we wrap up here, I just wanna show you why this is important. In 2 Peter 3.9, the apostle Peter writes, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Remember how I said that God's will, God's desire is for everyone to come to know him? That's where I get that. 2 Peter 3, 9, God wants everyone to come to know him. He wants everyone in this room to come to know him. He wants everyone in your neighborhood or your apartment complex to come to know him. He wants everyone in Hamilton County to come to know him. Now, in 2017, there were 323,000 people in Hamilton County alone, 323,000 people. Now, Pew Research Center did a study in 2010 of Hamilton County and about 42% of the county's population claimed allegiance to a particular Christian church or group, 42%. Now, we know that doesn't mean that 42% of our county is following Jesus, right? But let's just give everybody the benefit of the doubt and say 42% of our county are Christians. That still means that there are 187,340 people. 187,340 people to be reached in Hamilton County alone. And that gap between what God wants, 100%, and what we have now, that 187,340 people, that's why we need to be disciple makers. Because that's 187,340 people that were created by God for a purpose who unfortunately are destined to spend eternity in hell separated from him. It's 187,340 stories of tragedy and triumph of love and loss. And they're headed for eternity without God if we don't do something. And that's just Hamilton County. I mean, just think about what that means for greater Indianapolis. It's in the upper hundreds of thousands. For Indiana, that's 3.8 million people who don't know Christ Nationwide, it's hundreds of millions of people. And we don't have much time. Look at 2 Peter 3, 9 again. It says, instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But verse 10 says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Jesus is coming soon. We don't know when. But we need to do everything we can to rescue as many as we can. That means you need to do everything you can to rescue as many as you can. But but what if you started with just one? Because one of those 187,340 people lives next door to you. One of those 187,340 people works in the cubicle next to yours or is in your homeroom class. One of those 187,000 people has kids who play soccer with your kids or they grew up and went to the same high school with you or they're your friend on Facebook. You know those 187,340 people. I know those 187,340 people and you have more influence over them than this church ever will. When baby Jessica's life was in danger, the whole world rushed in to try to rescue her for one life, just one life, how much more should we be willing to join the rescue of dozens or hundreds or thousands or millions of people who are destined for eternity separated from God? Won't you join us in his rescue mission? Let's pray together. God, that number is a little overwhelming to me. As I think about a football stadium full of people, you know, that's that's three football stadiums just here in Hamblin County, full of people who don't know you. God, it's overwhelming when we think of it that way. And so I'm so thankful for the, the pattern you gave us of investing our life in one, investing our life in a few, that our job is not to make disciples of the whole world it's to make disciples of a few. Jesus, I'm convicted that when you left the earth that you had 11 men who were totally bought into you. And I just think about the impact that we could have if each of us had that same influence in the circles in our lives. God help us to be intentional in following your pattern, following your lead in making disciples who make disciples. We pray these things in Jesus' name.